Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Strada to Dock and Cabin. The award-winning all-new Dacia Jogger SUV is the most affordable seven-seater family car in the country. Seven seats for optimum comfort, adjustable roof bars, keyless entry, rear sensors and lots more. Test drive it now. See BlackstoneMotors.ie. Hello there and good afternoon and you're very welcome along to Monday's Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully in again for Jerry Kelly and a whole new week stretching out in front of us and you never know. I'm still hopeful that summer might arrive this week. It's not arrived today though. It might look nice out but it's actually still pretty cold. Anyway, um, I should start I suppose and at the risk of kind of mentioning the war I should begin by offering my commiserations to y'all on the match yesterday and we won't dwell on it but like oh that was a shame and all that so I'm sorry for your trouble. Anyway in other news uh, did you watch the Eurovision? Anybody who is kind of my age or near it I'm 61 I'm sure wonders how a contest that was originally a song contest where the singers put on a nice frock or a nice suit and sang their little hearts out accompanied maybe by some toe tapping backing singers or something has morphed into the absolute bonkers show that it is now. I didn't watch the singing bit um, or I should say the performances uh, but I tuned in for the voting um, which is again gone completely and utterly bonkers. I mean did you see your man from Iceland who came on with like some kind of weird mask on him and he started to take bits of it off and when he'd finished that he just roared Sweden meaning the 12 votes from Iceland went to Sweden. It was mental and he wasn't the only one. There was lots of them who were giving little mini performances of their own. Um, absolutely mad. Of course, our own Niamh Kavna um, was the epitome of professionalism and style um, and just delivered the goods as, as we would expect. But to me, the stars from what I saw were the co-hosts and two in particular. I mean, obviously, our Graham doing what he does best and he was funny and he was, you know, he's always he's always a joy to watch. But he was joined, particularly uh, in the bit, the, the, the voting bit, he was joined by a woman I'd never laid eyes on before and I had to look her up. Her name was Hannah Waddington and she's an actress starting something, again, called Ted Lasso. I need to get out or stay in more or something. I don't know what that is. But anyway, she was a statuesque woman who was funny and relaxed and one of these really people who were really joyful to watch her doing her thing. She was totally at ease with herself and the audience and her co-presenter. And to me, she was the star of the show. I wonder would she be up for the Late Late Show gig? Although Patrick Keelty seems to be a shoe in for that job now. And a good choice, a good choice in my view. I mean, he isn't a woman and that's a pity because after the three lads, it would have been nice to see a woman in the chair. But it seems that that boat has sailed. Anyway, 
we'd have to explain to Hannah because she's English we'd have to explain to her about the Late Late Show and like so many Irish cultural things it's kind of beyond explanation so maybe we should leave that in the good hands of uh, Mr Kilty anyway did you see the Eurovision what did you think what do you think we're to need to do to get us back into the running in some way? Um, I mean, do you agree with me that it's not really about the song anymore? It's about a total performance. It's more like pantomime or cabaret or, or something and spectacle. Uh, let me know what you think and let me know what you think about any of the items we're going to discuss on the show today. You can send us a text or a WhatsApp to 086 1800 658. And as per usual, we would love to hear what do you think? Anyway, time to get down to business. Now, May is Brain Cancer Awareness Month and recently a young mother of three who is living with incurable brain cancer has revealed that she is racked with guilt about the devastating impact her illness will have on her children's lives. Alana Sheehan, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thank you so much. Good morning. How are you? Sure, we're good. We're good now. And listen, thank you so much for taking taking the time to have a chat with us about something that must be difficult enough to talk about, is it? Um, it I suppose, like, I got diagnosed in March 2020. Um, and it is, like, at times, at times it is hard to talk about, but I think in general it's just, it's become just part of my life. There's no ignoring it. And I've had some time to kind of well, dare I say, get used to the situation. Process it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can you bring us back, if, if if you don't mind, can you bring us back to March 2020 and how it felt to get that diagnosis? Um, so it was, I was normally, um, you would be waiting maybe a week to get the news, to get a biopsy back. But um, because, say, just after I had surgery, um, COVID was happening, so I had an extra two weeks to wait. So I was waiting for three weeks to get the news. Oof. And then, unfortunately, um, I, my phone rang and I was at home with my children and I got the news over the phone. Oof. And, yeah, like to say, like I just, my life literally flashed in front of my eyes and I have never, I, I've never felt so much pain. Like I literally felt like I was dying there and then. Right, right. And what was your what was your first thoughts um, when you got that diagnosis? Was it about the road ahead or was it about, because you've spoken about this, was it about your children or was it a mixture of both or was it all jumbled up in your head? I think, um, well, when I first heard it, like I, I just instantly thought, um, I'm, an, I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah. So I wasn't expecting that. Right. Um, but I, my whole life just flashed in front of my eyes. Like I... First of all, I was thinking, like, how long do I have left? Yeah. Um, then I was, I just panicked about my children. Like, on the on the phone call, um, I just panicked about my children. I think the only question I could ask was, is it hereditary? And, um, like, how long, how much time do I have left? Um, because, obviously, I was just so worried about my children. Sure. Um, I was just, like, I was just very, I was in the dark for so long. Um, I didn't know how long I had left to live. Um it was just absolutely horrific. And yeah, my children were my first thought, definitely. And after you got that, which is, and I mean, I presume that you got the news by phone because of COVID. Not, yeah. Normally you would be sitting in a doctor's office and presumably normally you would possibly have had somebody with you um, yeah. uh, to deal with that. So after that phone call, when you hung up the phone and and you, and you and when you got, not that you got over the initial shock, but, you yeah. know, as the news started to, to permeate down into into your mind, 
Did you have a million questions then that you needed to find out the answers to? I did. Um, like, obviously, I was in shock with the phone call. And then afterwards, um, like, my husband came into the room um, and the two of us just hugged each other and we just started crying. Um, like, I I couldn't think on the phone and I didn't yes. know when the next my next chance to speak with a doctor would come. Um, but yeah, afterwards, like I was basically left with Google for a few weeks until I had my next appointment. Right. Um, so yeah, my, my main thing was like, I just, he told me that it was rare. Yeah. So I, I honestly, I felt so alone because mm-hmm. um, I didn't like rare. I thought I'd be like maybe 10 in Ireland or something. I didn't realize that it was actually very common. And then like my other question was, how much time do I have left? So I didn't know how much time I had left. I was, my daughter was, I think maybe 11 weeks old when I found out. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then um, one of my sons was two and the other one was four. And like, I just, I literally panicked. I didn't know. I wanted to write them letters. I didn't know how long I had left. I I was just really, really in the dark um, and just panicking about what was I going to leave my children with? How were they going to remember me? You know, Gosh. it was just... And you were just 11, 11 weeks out from having given birth. That is... Uh, yeah. That, that is something serious to, to, to try and uh, get your head around. And tell yeah. me, what, where where are you now? I mean, you're having treatment, I, I, I presume, now. No, I'm actually, it's it's been pretty incredible. Okay. Um, say, since the standard course of treatment for anyone with a brain tumour is you have surgery first if it's operable. Um, so there they'll try and take away as much as they possibly can. And then after that, you have um, chemotherapy, no, sorry, radiation, 30 sessions, which is six weeks, and then six months of chemotherapy. So I have been so lucky, and it's all been a miracle, that that treatment works for me. Um, Now, when when I had my surgery, um, I think they removed maybe 95%. Okay. Um, But because with this type of cancer, like it... They try and remove as much as possible, but the cancer actually goes through your brain. It, it's impossible to remove it all. Okay. But at the moment, like, I am so lucky. I have been stable since treatment. Um, I've had no other treatment since um, Christmas 2020. And at the moment, I go for, I started off getting a scan every three months because okay. it's a really um, aggressive type of cancer. Mm. So I have to be monitored every three months, but because... I just found my stre- my scans so stressful and they consider that it's safe enough now. My scans have been pushed out every four months. Good. Um, so that's where I am now. But like I have to say as well, my I've changed my whole life, like my whole mentality, everything that I eat, like I've changed every aspect of my life um, just to try and fight this with the best hand that I have. I, I um, and, to, and, to, and to kind of try and stay as healthy in the other ways uh, as you possibly can. Yeah, like I, I have no option. Like I have to, I have to be here for as long as I possibly can. And has it changed your outside of those kind of physical or practical things? Has it changed your attitude to life in a more general way? Do you think, Alana? Oh, absolutely. Tell like me about I, that. I just think, like in general, I feel like I'm a much better person. Um, say before this happened, I was always very hard on myself. Um, just always kind of giving myself a hard time. You know, nothing was ever good enough. Um, I was always kind of 
I don't know, I suppose, like, kind of on to the next thing, looking for the next thing, looking for the next thing, not um, 100% happy. And I think with this, like, I've just, like, I've just become so much more grateful for everything that I have. And yeah. I think once once you become grateful, you just become happy with what you have. You're not searching anymore. Um I've become a much happier person because I just, I, every day I wake up, like obviously I have bad days and just days that I can't cope. But in general, I wake up and I just, I'm just so grateful. I think gratitude has just been, just changed everything in so many ways. Like I'm grateful every day to wake up and breathe. I'm grateful that I'm able to walk. I'm grateful to be able to do the school run because I didn't drive for two years. Yeah, I'm just very, very grateful. And like, I'm, so much more of a positive person. That's 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 incredible. And tell me, yeah. you, you talked about um, the guilt you feel because, you know, during your treatment, presumably um, that, that you weren't there for your kids as much as you can. And obviously then you're, you're worried about going going forward, being there for them. How, how does yeah. that how does that make you how do you deal with that? Um, I think like I'm just feeling even getting emotional now. I think when it comes to my children, mm. I just, to be honest, like, I do think about it, but it's the one thing that just pains me the most is not being there for them. Um, but I I don't know. I suppose, like, I just, I kind of think, like, I can't cry about dying today because it's not going to happen today. Yeah. And, like, with my children, like, I just, I feel like I missed out... In one way, I feel like I missed out a lot when I was going through treatment um, because obviously, like my daughter Phoebe was so young at the time. I was afraid that she was, like I wasn't able to be the same mother that I was with the boys. And at times I was afraid like that she was going to reject me. Like I remember just feeling so awkward even trying to feed her like while going through treatment because I just didn't have the energy. And like now... um, like in a way we're kind of over that hard bit because yes. now our life looks very much normal to anyone else um so i have that guilt and i know that my children are okay because like this is a happy house yeah i know that they're okay right now but i i can't help but to think like and it just weighs me down the thought like yes it feels like it's kind of over but like it's very much still here yeah and at it's- some stage it will, like, fingers crossed, I'll be the only one in the world that it will not come back. Yeah. But yeah. at some stage, it will come back. And, like, I already, I'm still processing what has happened, but I already fear, you know, the next time I get sick, like, going through, if I go tr- through treatment again. And then ultimately, like, when that day comes, like, I just, I can't even think of that bit and the impact it'll have on my children because it'll last a lifetime. It sounds, though, from what you said to me earlier about how it's changed your attitude to life, is that the time, like, as you say, every day is precious. You're grateful for every little thing. Um, And therefore, I would imagine that your children are getting kind of the gold standard, if you like, right now, um, (laughs) which a lot of us just take for granted, you know, because it's tough when you have small children. Um, And I think, you know, there's there's a real lesson for all of us in in what you've um, you've had to say. So um, I was surprised to read somewhere that the the treatment for brain cancer hasn't changed in in quite a number of years, whereas other cancer treatments have improved. Is this one of the reasons why you wanted to speak out about brain cancer in particular? Yeah, like I 
It is, as you said there in the intro- introduction, it's um, go grey for me and it's Brain Cancer Awareness Month and like as someone who has been affected by this and through um, through my Instagram account, I'm in touch with so many people um, who have brain tumours and who have been affected by brain cancer. Um, so treatment hasn't changed in 30 years, which is just so frustrating. Um, it just feels like it's not important. It receives, brain cancer receives less than 2% of the annual funding. Wow. And every single person that is um, diagnosed is told that it's rare and it's an old man's disease. But like I can confirm that the majority of people that get in touch with me are women um, and they're all in their 30s. And sorry to keep on going on, but this is just so important to me. Um, I think this is really shocking and a lot of people are totally unaware of this. But brain tumours kill more women under 35 than breast cancer. Um, That's incredible when you consider how aware we all are of breast cancer. That is incredible, yeah. that statistic. And it's it's so young. Yeah. Like, you know, like most of us are just having children, buying our houses, like literally starting our lives. And then it's just taken away. Um, also, brain tumours kill more children than leukaemia and more men under 40 than prostate cancer. Good Lord. So it's very much like it's... it's uh, it's killing so many young people. It's a real big problem and it's on the rise as well. God, that is absolutely shocking. Um, Alana, you're, I mean, I, I'm stunned by your, your courage and your bravery in sharing uh, this, which I know is difficult for you. You mentioned your Instagram account and I, I was having a look at it earlier. Um, your Instagram account for anybody out there who wants to uh, get in touch or, or, or follow Alana is at worth underscore fighting for the number four. <laughs> and her bio, her bio is, I love this. If there was a prize for bios, you'd get the gold uh, medal. Thank you. Sick bitch with a good sense of tumour. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah, I just think is laugh, brilliant. What have got? Do you know what? You're so right. But look, if anybody wants to follow you, or if anybody, if what you are, uh, what you've talked to us about today is is kind of you know resonating with anybody, I would uh, recommend you you have a look at that uh, because, as you say, a sense of humour and positivity and gratitude shine through from it. Alana, I wish you the very best to keep living your best life, and also I'm very grateful to you for highlighting something that is a serious issue. I'm sure in doing so you will have helped so many people. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. Go great for me. Nah, listen, not at all. If we can if we can help again in the future, just give us a shout. We'd be delighted to. That was Alana Sheehan there. And as I say, her Instagram account is at worth underscore fighting number four. Don't go away. We'll be back after this. And you're welcome back to The Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully in with you today. Right. They say that a picture can paint a thousand words and certainly during the COVID lockdowns, photographs illustrated very graphically and and often poignantly moments that should have been so very different. One particular photo has come to global attention because it was used in a hit Netflix documentary. The shot of Michael Gallagher from Drumconroth County Meath gazing adoringly at his daughter Emma's baby, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Fuelon, appears on the Light We Carry documentary on Netflix. And Michael, who's also a Sinn Féin councillor, joins me now to tell me more. Hello there, Michael. How are you doing? Have we got Michael there? Hello? Have we got Michael? 
Okay, Michael, uh, the line seems to have dropped there, so we're just going to try and get him back on the line. Um, Again, I don't know if any of you have seen that documentary, The Light We Carry. It's not something that I have seen, but I look forward to seeing it now. But certainly this is a great, uh, a great story. My husband is a professional photographer and during COVID, these kind of photographs capturing what people were doing were uh, were really, really important in telling the story. I think we have Michael back on the line now. Michael, are you there? Good man, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm good, yeah. You're good. Good. Listen, um, tell me first of all about uh, this photo and the day. Tell us first, describe the photo, what it's of, and then if you can tell me about the day it was taken. Well, the photograph is of myself looking in the window at first grandchild. The father of the child was holding it inside in in the sitting room and... uh, the mother of the child, uh, Emma, took the photograph. I didn't really know what was happening. She got on the mobile phone. So that's really how the photograph happened. And my daughter then that evening put it on Twitter. And uh, it went viral from then on, you know. Did it? So it shot around uh, social media immediately? It did, yeah. yeah. And how, um, did, how did you feel, uh, Michael? I mean, I know what it feels like to hold a grandchild for the first time, but to be not able to, I also know how it feels not to be able to do that, but to be not able to do that and to be separated by the window, how did that feel for you at the time? Can you remember? It, it, it was a tough time. And, and again, it was a tough time on, on everybody. But uh, it, it, it was, at, at the time, I suppose, a lot of uncertainty and, and a lot of fear of the COVID. We were looking at pictures of corpses in, in containers right across the world. And uh, it, it, it was a very uncertain time. Again, it, it was very tough on the parents of, of the child, like Michael and Emma, because they, they were left on their own for the, the 15 weeks, you know, and uh, left their own. But no, uh, no family no support. No help from everybody, no help or, or right. you know, couldn't leave a babysitter or, you know, it, it was tough in that way. Yeah. Uh, and but it, look, it was a tough time. People died in, in hospitals with nobody around them either. You know, it's sure. really a tough time. We don't realise, I suppose, in the three years. What yeah, we've I, through, maybe, you know? I often think it'll take us quite a while. I think to process those kind of moments. And I, I hear what you're saying that other people died, and you know, this was a different thing. But also, it's a moment you're never going to get back. That first moment of seeing your grandchild, um, yeah. you know, which which you know has has an impact. I think. But tell me, so so. The, your daughter put the photograph up on Twitter and off it went and yeah. how did you how did you come to know or did somebody contact you to ask your permission for it to be used in the Netflix documentary no well oh. it did it was on Dr Phil and they sent an email to Emma asking that they would uh, they could have put it on the programme so it has been on Dr Phil it has been used in Dove uh, soap advertisement in America as well they didn't contact us either you know did they not do you no. mean it was used by Dove Soap and you didn't get paid for it? No. <gasps> That's <laughs> somebody not... Offered to, somebody offered to buy the photograph early on, I think. They were offering me $200 and Michael and Emma $600, which we didn't. Well, holy God, that's that's well below its market value. I can tell you that for sure. And the photograph has now been watched. This document, the photograph in the documentary, has been watched by something in the region of 190 million viewers. Yeah, I, I, I told the exact figure: 195 million on Twitter. You know, I've looked at it. Good Lord! And how do you feel about that? Do you feel famous now, Michael? 
Well, uh, the payload said the last day I went into him, he showed me the photograph on the Chronicle and he said, we're famous, Grandad. So <laughs> <laughs> and how does how does, how does Phelan feel about it? Well, that's, well, that's the only comment he made. He said, we're famous, you know. Seamus <laughs> uh, Farley took the photographs and you know, it's great to see Seamus back in action again uh, at the photography. Uh, from, you know, Seamus from LMFM, he took the photographs. So, oh, right. Uh, Very good. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, photographers took a bit of a hit during the lockdown. I can I can definitely yeah. testify to that. Being married to one, yeah, so it's good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, it it look it, it, it's a good news story now, and and uh, it was tough times for everybody, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know, like we, we we've come a long way. Does Phelan have? How old is Phelan now? He's about two or three, is three. he? Three, yeah. Three. Yeah. So I mean, he wouldn't have any real understanding about what the pandemic oh, was about, or no. lockdowns, no. or anything like that. Um, Whenever we went into labour, she went in on the Friday, uh, on the Saturday then was a lockdown. So when they came back out, everything was closed, you know. Janie. So it, it was the world a big change changed. where they were in there, you know. Oh, God. Well, at least they got in and, 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 and uh, before it all changed, because I know a yeah, lot of women who gave right. birth then, then, on their yeah, own. Then, 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 then after that, the, the, the father wasn't allowed in. And That's right. Know, That's right. So I, 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 it was tough times for everybody, and you know, the, people even not being allowed to go leave the home. You know, the, the yeah, no, that's time, true. You know, people didn't realise this was what people went through. You know, yeah, and thankfully we didn't realise in advance what was coming, and I think that helped. Do you know what I mean? If I we'd have been told is, yeah. in advance yeah. what was coming yeah. down the tracks, we would have all had collective nervous breakdowns. Come here, I need to ask you, Michael. Did you watch the entire documentary? Now, tell the truth. I didn't know. <laughs> you just saw I, I, the... wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known it was on it only uh, Anne Casey from the Me Chronicle contacted me to say that I know that it was on Netflix. So, along uh, with and who's your starring? You're starring alongside uh, two very, very, very high-profile, famous, powerful women. Uh, this was documentary with Oprah Winfrey and yeah. Michelle Obama. Like that's serious yeah. company, Michael. Well, it is right on the launch of our of our book. That's right. Michelle Obama's book, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's amazing how the photograph got legs, and and uh, you know, from the very simple photograph that I didn't know was being taken actually, but uh, it's just it shows how small the world is as well. You know. We're, it certainly does. It certainly does. I still think you should have got paid for it, though, Michael. Do you know, I'm going to go home now and tell my husband this story and he'll be horrified that somebody took a photo that gained that level of traction and you didn't get any money for it. That's terrible. But anyway, you'll have to you'll have to just you have a story that you can pass down through Foylon and all oh, the generations yeah. about the fame. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, it's a good news story. It is indeed. It, we like good news stories. Michael, listen, thanks a million. Uh, thanks a million for taking our call. It was lovely to talk to you. That thing there uh, was uh, Michael Gallagher and uh, the documentary we're referring to I think is still on Netflix and it's called uh, The Light We Carry with Michelle Obama and uh, Oprah Winfrey and we've got a kind of an appropriate song now to go with that piece this is Photographed by Ed Sheeran and you're welcome back. You're listening to The Late Lunch here on LMFM with me, Barbara Scully, in for Jerry Kelly. Now, we all know that waste and particularly clothes waste is a huge issue. Apparently, we have something like three landfill sites left in Ireland and they're rapidly filling up. Our incinerators, I believe, are also running at close to full capacity too. So it's more important than ever that we look at ways of recycling everything, but particularly clothing. And a project to do just that has just ended in Rathoth Community Centre. To tell us more, I am joined now on the line by Eilish Balf, who was the coordinator of the project. How are you doing, Eilish? 
Hiya, Barbara. Thanks a million for having me on. I'm delighted to talk to you because I love the whole idea of this. I think it's brilliant. And I love the name. Can you take credit for that? It was called Flipping Fashion, which could be kind of... Interpreted in two ways, flipping fashion and flipping fashion. And flipping fashion, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. So I can take credit, absolutely. Um, but it was Mark Mulholland. We got a funding from the Coca-Cola Thank You Fund. And I kind of came up with the idea. Um, and Mark Mulholland helped me pitch it because he's wonderful at writing things down and how we were going to do it. Um, so we pitched it to Coca-Cola. It was real Dragon Den style. Wow. And um, we were lucky enough to get the grant and we got a grant of €5,000. Um, and we bought sewing machines and um, uh, we we got the, the participants. There were six participants and the age range was eighteen or sorry, 16 to 23. And we got them to only shop in charity shops or bring in clothes that they had had in their wardrobe and they were never going to wear again. And um, we restyled them and uh, the, the fabulous things they brought in from the charity shops. One of the girls brought in a pair of pinstripe trousers that she got for four euro. Wow. Um, and, you know, that's on par with your sheen, you know, because your sheen, you're going to get things for five, ten euro. But actually, if you go into those charity shops, you're going to find the exact same price and better quality. Better quality. I was just going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. I see sheen of actually, I think they're... European or world, their European headquarters, I think, have just opened here in Ireland. The government were delighted. Not a great kind of day for, um, you know, saving the planet. No, and like, you know, so before we got the the, the uh, participants sewing, we actually went through that with them. Right. We had two designers with, with us. Um, one was Lorna McCormick, the other one was Sinead Power. But Lorna is does wool in school and she's all into sustainability and, you know, reimagining things. So Lorna, Lorna was great for that. And we, we looked at TED Talks and um, we looked to see how bad it's actually fast fashion is so bad for climate change. But not just climate change, it's the equality for women as well. Because a lot of these women, um, a lot of these, uh, you know, factories yeah. have women who are predominantly employed um, in this labour, which is precarious conditions for them. They're not getting paid correctly. They're not having correct holidays. So we wanted to drive that home as well, that the true cost of fast fashion is not just climate, but it's for the people as well who are, who are employed by these people. Yeah. Gosh, that's 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 way bigger now. That was much bigger than I thought we were going to be talking about. That's fantastic. I love that yeah. idea that you started off with education and then yeah. you went into the, to, to, to the practical things. So how many people did you have participating in the course and how long was the course? We had six participants over eight weeks and um, through the grant we were able to buy really good sewing machines that will last us for a number of years. Yeah. Um, we had Anne-Marie and Rosemary. Anne-Marie um, has, been, has been sewing for for 45 years. She got her first machine when she was five years old. So she was a joy to have on board because she was able to teach us everything. And the participants, now I have to say to them, absolutely got so involved. The, the creativity every week was just off the charts you know, um, and what they were going to do. They turned um, a pair of trousers into a top um, another pair of trousers was turned into a pair of shorts. Um, you know, if they got um, clothes from the charity shops, we just twigged them a little bit if they needed to have like the straps sorted or whatever. So that's what we did. Um, but just the creativity between those 16 and 23 year girls, I'm telling you, they would have put me to shame because I can't draw a straight line. They're amazing. <laughs> and obviously they then have things that are completely unique as well, that they're, you know, they're, they're completely bespoke, if you like. 
Yeah, so like that's it. It was just they were changing stuff um, into something that, you know, is unique, mm. you know, and with the material that was left over, we actually made scrunchies out of them as well. So my six-year-old daughter, Minnie, has about four scrunchies in here and I've more in my bag that I'm going to give to the preschool, um, local preschool too. So we used all the material that we could. That's absolutely incredible. I recently came across in, in my in my um, utility room all the um, cloth face masks that we had bought and were using during the pandemic and there was a load of them. And they yeah. were like you know they were all different styles and colours and I was thinking as I chucked them all and I'm ashamed to say this especially to you I chucked them in the bin and I just and I remember thinking afterwards if I was a bit more creative I would have been able to do so like you know be able to sew them all together into some kind of patchwork something but I didn't so yeah I feel guilty now kind of going back to that mindset again like I'm well into my 40s at this stage and when I was shopping years ago um, myself and Lorna were just having this conversation we would have went into town and eager beaver and bought second hand Um, and I think then when you know fashion became so cheap we kind of went oh this is brilliant you know Um, and we buy too much of it where now um, we have to remember we need to go back the other way and like last week I was even reading an article about climate change they said Ireland is going to get colder so that doesn't scare us into helping I don't know what we're Yeah because there's know. always been a slight thing here that like you know a bit of a heating up would do yeah, us the power yeah, of good yeah, But <laughs> when I saw the colder I was like no no, no that's hope. not great yeah getting colder and wetter not, yeah, not. so it is just going back to those skills that we would have learned in home economics of the sewing and the knitting. But unfortunately, it's not really there anymore in school. Yeah. Um, so we're hoping, like this was the first of many courses we're hoping to run. We're hoping to do another one in the autumn and um, run it again and maybe this time go bigger because this was our first time. And, you know, I was a little bit nervous around it. I didn't know which way it was going to go. But now that we have the confidence that it went well, we have the confidence to kind of go further with it. And where we are in the community centre, we have a big theatre. I'm even thinking fashion show at this stage now, you know. Good woman yourself. And, you know, it's interesting what you said about, you know, when you got the funding that you bought sewing machines, because, again, I'm about 20 years older than you. But, I mean, when I was growing up, every house, as you know, more or less, had a sewing machine and and people sewed and they repaired stuff and I mean I remember growing up my mother and she wasn't bless her she was talented in loads of things she wasn't talented in making clothes uh, but she didn't stop her like so she made uh, you know quite a lot of my childish my childhood wardrobe was bespoke in other words a bit odd Um, but you know it was something that people did and as you say those skills every home had a sewing basket you know where there was you know people sewed and repaired stuff And, and as you say it's about changing the mindset and going back a little bit to that what if somebody is out there listening to us and I know you say you're going to have and I'll talk about that in a minute you're going to have more workshops but what are the simplest kind of things that people can do themselves maybe if Um, they were willing to take a shot just shop in a charity shop like that's the first point to call Um, we are in Rathout and we have some fabulous charity shops in um, Dunshockland and Ashburn and Dunboyne and you know the, if anybody wants to go onto the Ratho Community Centre page, I have the dresses that and a gorgeous play suit that one of them, um, the Patricians bought for ten euro. Um, absolutely beautiful clothes in there, and that's the first point. You know, as I said, instead of that Sheen Hall, go to that charity shop because you're going to get a fabulous dress for five to seven euro. And you know, if you're not into sewing or you know, because I'm not either, or you're not feeling creative. 
But that's the simplest thing you can do is get back into those charity shops and start yeah. um, and start buying from there. And you also don't even have to, uh, you know, if you have, you know, the way every so often, and again, it's because we buy, all of us buy cheap clothes that, you know, every so often you do a clear out in your wardrobe and you, you know, you get the black sack full of stuff that's to go to the charity shop, which is fine. But you could, you don't have to, if you've got something, a shirt, say, with, with nice um, fabric, you could, you don't have to make it into another piece of clothing. You could make it into a cushion cover or, as you say, a scrunchie or there would be other things that you can do with it other than making it into a different type of piece of clothing. Yeah, there's so many things. And like Lorna, who was on the design part of with, with us, she, you know, she buys things, they have lovely buttons. Right. And then she'll change the buttons into something else. Now, she's very creative, you know. But just if you are creative, that's another thing you can do. Even if you see something nice with a nice button on it, you can take the buttons off and put it somewhere else. And it just creates that a different look again. Um, you know, zips is another thing. Instead of like repairing zips, we kind of go, oh, that's broken and we jump it. Yeah, you know? true. Um, but we should absolutely start repairing um, rather than, than than dumping it, you know. Where did you um, get where did you get all this passion from? Um, I just came up with the idea. We saw the the grant for Coca Cola, and it was the sustainability in the community. And um, a, a good friend of mine called Elaine McGinty, she is all about climate and climate change. And I rang her and just pushed a few ideas past her, and she just thought the fashion one was brilliant. Um, and um, it was actually there's a there's a guy in our area. Um, I don't even know his name, but he repairs runners. I think it's called um, For Kicks or something. Brilliant. And I kind of said, geez, you know, that was so good. Imagine we could do that with clothes, you know. And then, you know, as I said, we were lucky enough to get the grant. If we hadn't got the grant, we wouldn't have been able to do this idea. But we were very lucky that that Coca-Cola, we were successful with them. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, as I say, your passion is absolutely palpable. And uh, where can people get in touch? You said you're going to have another, uh, uh, you're hoping to run another course, possibly a bigger one in the autumn. So I'm thinking if somebody wants to get involved in that or if somebody is interested in maybe setting something up like this or looking for funding in another area, where can people get in touch and find out more information? Um, so we, we're in the Ratho Community Centre, so we have a Facebook page so they can um, go through the Facebook page. Or I just, re- I just seen as well that um, Coca-Cola have released funding again, so they're looking for more ideas. So even if there was something like this, or it's all about sustainability in the community, um, and um, it's a really good idea. If you have a good idea about um, sustainability in the community, absolutely send it to them and, um, and see are you successful. That's fantastic. And when you mentioned the Facebook page, that's the Rathouse Community Centre Facebook page, is it? Yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Listen, well done. I am uh, I am stunned at your success, but also at your passion, um, which, as I say, is, is coming through loud and clear. And maybe there's hope for the planet after all, with all these young people uh, shopping in charity shops and then, as you say, customising and reusing and recycling uh, their stuff out of their wardrobe. Um, Eilish, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Thanks that was so Eilish Balf. And that thank is you, the Rattoth Community Centre. You can check out their Facebook page for more information. Welcome back. Now, a new play called Country and Irish written by the iconic Patrick McCabe is currently touring Ireland and will be in Anthorn on the 18th of this month. It stars actor and writer Peter Gowan who joins me now to tell me more. Hi Peter. Hello there, how are you? Ashram Grant, how are you? Uh, not too bad, I've just arrived in Belfast. 
Oh. Uh, prior to our, our two-day run at the Lyric Theatre and then we're down to Dundalk after that. Excellent, excellent. Listen, tell me about this play because the information I got is kind of mysterious. It says it's about a man, a banana, a tape recorder and a bomb. Yeah, I said, well, that's, that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very typically, typically uh, Pat McCabe. Yeah, it is a radio play that fell into my lap when I was working with a guy called Andrew Flynn who runs Decadent Theatre. And he's worked with Pat before. He did a version of the Dead School for the Galway Youth Theatre. And he said, I have this play. I don't know really what to do with it. And I have my own theatre company. And I was looking for a one-man play because I'm not funded by the Arts Council. This looked like a good fit. But the radio play wouldn't work for stage. So I approached Pat McCabe and he says, Go, you know, let's, let's see if we can sort of knock it into some kind of shape. And together we worked on it. And this is the result of it. But it's very typically McCabe. It's very funny. It's very dark. Right. A lot of serious things to say, but he he is got a, an enormous imagination, and I, I often see his head is kind of like just exploding uh, <laughs> with just about every idea that was ever possible uh, for a man to think about, um, and it's just about trying to put those into some coherent, um, you know, and uh, and accessible format, and I think the play does that. But it is it is weird. I mean, you come along to it, you laugh. But you will be going, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one of those one of those ones where you feel somebody's got into your brain and kind of pulled bits around in it and makes you feel a bit yeah. strange afterwards. The thing is that my brother saw the play. It's a one man show. My brother saw the play last year. Mm. And he said to me when I was doing it again, he said, Are you going to still have the same two two guys in it? And I said, What two guys? Oh the um the two the two guys who come to and, and I said, Paddy, there's just me on stage. But his memory of it and it's the quality of the writing, and I suppose the production as well, is that he, he, his, it, the, what implanted in his head was this scene between Donny Burris, who's the central protagonist, and two other characters that I play. So I think it just has a, you know, it's well written in that way, and it, it, has, it has all the things that a one-man show needs, which is kind of playing lots of characters and lots of different scene changes. But I think it, does, it made an impact. It really Another person came with their son who was 17, he'd never been to the theatre before, and he said, uh, the father said, well, what did you think? And he said, oh, yeah, it was great. It was great, but I didn't think it'd be so violent. <laughs> um, no, I, I have a banana in that. That's the only <laughs> really dangerous thing that the character actually The only has. weapon. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's, well, it's lethal, obviously. Well, I think... For young people... I think you're also being very modest when you describe, uh, you know, I mean, the writing has to be, as you say, and the production has to be, but so has the acting when you're doing those characters that, that your brother went off and thought he actually saw two different characters on stage. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you need to you need to take a bow yourself for that achievement. Yeah, yeah. I just don't want to sound too cocky or whatever, but I have done one-man shows before and... They're, they're very challenging, um, very scary. I was, I was um, just going to say that. It must be exhausting as well, is it? It's very tiring. But then, you know, the thing is, there's no point doing this job unless it really... It's very satisfying, but it's terrifying. But not in a way, as the wife says, you're not going to die. You may think yeah. you're going to die. You're not going to die. But it, it, is, it is very tense. I mean, when you perform a one-man play, uh, I have another one that was 80 minutes, but this one is 60 minutes. Um, and but, but just... The first public performance, you want to go to the toilet or run away or yes. vomit. Um, and you can't do any of those things, clearly, because people have paid money to come and see you. But the minute you step on stage, it, it sort of goes and, and away you go. And you, you're, you're, and people are always fascinated about, like, how can you, how can you stand and just recite something? Yeah. One? 
power. And it's amazing, but we all have that ability to remember things. Our memories are amazing things. But also what happens is the audience kind of gets on board with the story. Essentially, it's just a, a yarn. You know, as if sometimes in conversation, you know, somebody will start telling all the way till they hear about this. And this could be 15 minutes of describing something vivid. Yeah. And, you know, you participate in that. And so this is a piece of theatre in which people really kind of become engaged with, you know, uh, and it's pretty, unrel- it's pretty unrelenting. Yeah. I- because they, they, just the nature of the kind of, the, the sort of the, the boldness of it, I suppose, I mean that in a kind of like an English term rather than an, an Irish naughty term. But it really does. It is. It is. Uh, it is out there as a piece of writing, and and I really enjoy doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested when you said that you know uh, that you 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 feel like either uh, uh, throwing up or going to the toilet or running away uh, before yeah. each performance because I I t- I tampered very very much delicately once with doing um, uh, something on the stage myself uh, as part of a bigger thing. And I remember one of the seasoned, I mean, I'm not an actress, one of the proper actors said to me, I was terrified beforehand, like I would never have signed up for it had I known I was going to be so, as you say, nearly feeling physically sick. And one of the other actors said to me, oh, but the high afterwards will be fantastic. And I have to say, I got no high afterwards. I just felt like I'd been in a really serious car crash and managed to walk away with no major injuries. Do you experience the high? No, I totally experience, I experience a real sense of satisfaction. Yeah. And also a, a quiet amazement that I've actually, there are parts when I get to the play, the sort of three quarter way through, is that, oh, we're here already. Sometimes when you kind of get involved, it just flies by. I mean, I'm so used to doing it now, but there's something kind of really satisfying as an artist to be able to go on and do your work and for people to be engaged with it and for you to achieve it, you know. So it's not, it's not so much of a high... Um, in the sense of like a woo-hoo-hoo. But it is, it is just, just, I mean, that'd be crazy. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm always, no, I don't no, know. It is, it is, it is, I feel satisfied. But, but the other things are like, that because I'm touring at the end of the play, it's not a woo-hoo. It's like, let's get out of here. We've got to go to the next place. Yeah. So we've been traveling. In, on the first week, we did six venues and we did 920 kilometers. Wow. Like, yeah. It was just, cause it's, it's whistle stop and it has to be because, um, I'm, you know, it's a professional company. Everybody's being paid, and so I had to do loads of venues in order to make it work. Sure, I understand. And, um, and it's also great for me to get out and meet people. I've never been to the town before. I'm looking forward to meeting Paul there. Um, you know, and just just getting putting a, a, a face to the name because I want to do more touring uh, with the company. The company called Fight of Flight. I was artist in residence at Smock Alley for a year. Lovely I have a, an association with them to do two plays a year and one of those I want to take out on tour each year as well. So this is a kind of a, a fact-finding establishment of a possible, uh, you know, uh, 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 what you call it, a kind of a itinerary. Each venue has its own kind of particular needs. Some are doing better than others. Some are kind of really not, or have got a real difficulty in getting theatre there because it's so difficult to get funds and it takes so yeah. long. I'm just sort of in the process of trying to look at another way of, another pathway of ensuring that if somebody books a play, uh, you know, this year for next April, that they will definitely show up and not home in November and say, uh, oh, well, we're really sorry, we didn't get our arts council grant, so the yeah. so it's not happening, and that happens a lot. So it's the precarious, the precarious nature of live performances. Well, it doesn't need to be. There's more money for the arts now than there ever was. It's just not finding its way into uh, 
regional theatres. Mm. Um, there are great facilities. Every theatre, so I would say half of the, 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 the venues in Ireland are kind of state of the art. They have everything. Yeah. And a full-time technical manager, a full-time box office staff, a full-time venue director or, or programme manager, and no product. Or right. very, very okay. And so they're, they're stuck on a diet of um, uh, music gigs or comedy. Mm. The theatre is, is just the theatre drops away. So it's something that I want to do something about myself yeah. anyway. Because there's nothing, there's nothing better than a night, uh, a night at the theatre. Now, listen, you've done a lot of work in both film and television as well. Um, have, yeah. So tell us some of the things that people might know you from. Well, um, I was in Partition Street a good few years ago. I played a guy called Simon Beatty, um, and I was in it for about three and a half months, and that was great fun. But I was basically like the hole that the character fell down. Because uh, Simon Beatty, um, what's his name, Des's wife wanted to get out, and so she had an affair with me. Huh. And that was that was the device basically to get she ran away with me. <laughs> Very good. And then she ran away from me, and then I came oh. back the following year, and man was doing a Sandy Kowalski outside her window crying for. Her. Um, and then I was I was in Love Hate, um, which was on RT, yeah, great series. Um, I was in the series Charlie Hockey as well. I played um, George Collie. In, All right. That series, um, with uh, Aidan Gillen as Hawkey. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah. and is there a big difference, there must be a big difference between acting for uh, the camera, be it film or television, and doing the yeah. kind of stuff you're doing now. And So what's the difference and which do you prefer? Well, I love, I love all acting. It's all great, but my, my soul is in the theatre. Right. I would say, you know, if, if I was told that I would never be on television or do a film again, I would be indifferent if I was told that I could never perform in the theatre again, I would kill that person. <laughs> With your banana. There's such a difference, you know. No, I love the theatre. I, I, I think the theatre is kind of like I, was a, I'm, I am a, a, an artist working in the theatre. That's essentially, now I, I can use my skills to work in television or film or radio, but I don't often do it. Yeah. I, I, I love the theatre and I write the theatre and I've got a very good... Uh, track record in terms of making good theatre and, and theatre that has kind of just been very important and I want to continue to do that but with my good. company I've good. got more control and I, I can I can have more influence because Excellent. I think it's just, you know I've got 45 years experience and now it's an opportunity for me to say look I know what I'm doing Brilliant but, yeah listen that's you know, that's the, the money. I put their money where my mouth is. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like you're doing that. Listen, it was lovely to talk to you, Peter. Best of luck in Belfast for the next two nights. And you're down here in Antoine and Dundalk on Thursday, the 18th of May. It sounds like a great night out. Continued success. Well, Thanks for talking to us. Selling fast. So get on to Antoine immediately. Immediately. Right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks a million. And you're welcome back. Now, there's a saying which I love that says, if we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. And I feel we really need to change the way we look at uh, wildlife and biodiversity and the animals with which we share this planet. Um, Susan Kerwin it runs Ireland's first dedicated bat hospital and she's making an appeal to homeowners to be aware of baby birds if they are thinking, and this strikes, breaks my heart, if they are thinking of destroying a nest at this time of year. And she joins me now. Hi, Susan. How are you doing today? 
I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Not at all. It's lovely to talk to you. I love anybody who 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 works with animals and deals with sorting animals out and minding them and all the rest of it. And I know that your main work is with bats. But lately, yeah. you've been getting a lot of calls from your area, which I think is Limerick and Kerry, from people who are distressed by neighbours destroying nests at this time of year. That's true. And unfortunately, it's it's a, a countrywide problem. Mm. Uh, we find as rehabbers um, that at this time of the year our gardens are springing to life with baby birds and baby animals and the majority of us are excited and and welcome this but unfortunately we do get calls from distressed members of the public to say that neighbours are blocking up um, known, uh, known nests so a lot of birds like starlings and house martins and swallows will nest at the side of our homes or in the eaves of our house. And people are going out, they're blocking up these nests, knowing that the chicks are in there, which is a death sentence for the chicks and so distressing for the parents that are still trying to, to get in there and feed their chicks. So it's absolutely horrendous. And, you know, apart from the fact that morally, it's you know, it's so wrong, it is totally illegal. And Ireland, uh, in Ireland animals, especially birds at this time of the year, are protected under the Wildlife Act. And this means that you cannot disturb or um, uh, or damage a known bird nest or nesting site. So I'm just encouraging people that if they do see this happening in their neighbourhoods or, you know, in, in their villages, that there are avenues you can go down to report this. You can reach out to National Parks and Wildlife Services where you can contact your, your local ranger. And also um, the Gardaí can come out and help you because it is a crime um, and there are large penalties for anybody that is found to be doing this. Do you, you know? think, do you think, I'm trying to give now people who might do this, and this is, I'm trying to, this is difficult, but I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Do you think, Susan, that sometimes people do this and they're not fully, I don't know how you couldn't be aware that there's not chicks because I have starlings nesting in the eaves of my house and you'd know, I know as soon as the chicks are there because you can hear them. Um, but do you think people aren't really aware of what they're doing? Unfortunately, I don't. Right. I, I do think that they're aware because of even the reasons that you, you just gave me. So we have the noise, we have the droppings, and these are the two areas where people are, they, they find that this interferes with their life, be it that they're soiling outside of their house or the noise that wakes them up early in the morning. So majority of people that contact me about issues like this are willing to, you know, work with us. They just want advice. They want to know how long will it take for the birds to fledge from the nest. And then once we tell them, look, it's going to be five or six weeks, but those birds will have moved on. And then once they've left, if you do want to block up those sites, you know, those areas, if they're waking up too early in the morning, there are, you know, there, there are things that can be done. But the people that are doing it, I, I honestly feel that, yes, they, they are aware of, of what's going on. There. And, and that's the really disturbing and sad part. It is sad. And they're only thinking of the nuisance value right now and trying to sort that out. Exactly. And it's a complete disconnect with with what they're actually doing, which is... It's hard to understand that disconnect, you know, because as I keep going back to, you know, the majority of us understand that this is nature, this is how we work, we live together, we share the planet and the benefits of having these animals. And then there are just that small portion of people that just see this as a disturbance to their life and they they don't want it there. But as I said, when you're thinking of an, an animal, helpless animal that's losing its life, 
for yeah. the sake of that, it's very hard to understand. It so. is. I mean, I presume, would you think that, that you know, maybe having a quiet word with your neighbour first uh, before you kind of uh, all, go down? All and, the time, all the time. Yeah. Have a word with your neighbour. Yeah. And uh, if you, but a lot of the time people don't want to call, they don't want to confront their yeah. neighbour because they have to live with them. And we, that's understandable, that's understandable too. Yeah. They do, we do get contacted about these issues, but within the law as a wildlife rehabilitator I cannot personally or or any of us cannot personally go onto somebody's property and say what you're doing so that's why we encourage people to reach out and you know as you said, there might be cases where people, you know, that this isn't a conscious thing that they're doing. Yes. And a, a wildlife ranger or somebody at Gardaí going out and just reminding them that it's illegal doesn't mean that they have to be prosecuted unless it's something that was intentionally done. Yes. And then, you know, so it, it can be done, but rather than just turn a blind eye to it, there are other avenues that people can take. Brilliant. Susan... Well done. I'll talk to you another day about your bat hospital. Thank you so much. Thanks a million for that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And you're welcome back to Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully. Um, Just looking on the text line here. uh, John in Drogheda has sent me in a photo uh, from, it looks like the engine bay of his Jeep. Yeah, he says under the bonnet of his Jeep where there is a lovely nest and uh, I think it's got a couple of eggs in it. So well done, John. I presume your Jeep is kind of out of action until until those eggs uh, sort themselves out. It's a great photo anyway. So uh, we'll be keep us updated when, when those eggs hatch and we see what comes out of them. Anyway, um, <laughs> next up, I love this story. OK, so the Guy family from Boards Mill in County Meath got what was described in the Meath Chronicle as an excellent surprise last week when they returned from a weekend away to discover one of their hens had laid a huge egg. The hen belonged to their son, Sean, who's 12 and who's on the line now to tell us about it. Hiya, Sean. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Tell me about your hen. What's her name? Sarah. Sarah. And how old, do you know how old she is, Sean? Yeah, she's four or five years old and she's brought out in red hen. A Rhode Island red hen. And does she yeah. normally, how do you know, first of all, that it, that, that it was she? Because you have a few hens, don't you? Yeah, she normally lays bigger eggs than all the rest, so we're fairly sure it's her. And is she a bigger, at this? I hope these questions aren't stupid now, Sean, but I, I don't have any hens, much as I'd like to. Is she a bigger hen than the other hens? Yeah, she's a little bit. A little bit bigger. And what did you, how did you discover? Did you just go down and did you read, did you, did you know by looking at the egg that it was a lot bigger than normal? Yeah, yeah. It's way bigger than the other ones. It's like twice the size of them and it felt way heavier when I was just picking it up. Did it? And what did you think when you saw it? Oh, I was just excited and I just thought, I I ran into the house and me and my brother did and we said get the scales out and we weighed it and it was 117 grams on the dot. 117 grams. And do you know how much a normal egg weighs, just so that we can kind of understand how much bigger it was? Yeah, the normal eggs are mostly 50 to 70 grams. Oh, wow. So it was nearly double what a normal egg would be. Yeah. Very, very good. And listen, you're when I read about you, you're leading a life that I kind of dream about because I believe you also have three pet lambs You've three yeah, roosters, you've ducks, and apparently you grow a load of vegetables in a greenhouse and you look after them at 7am every morning as well. Is that all true? Yeah. Good Lord. And what are your favourite, uh, you, is it like, you can't ask your mammy who's her favourite child. Do you have a favourite animal or a favourite hen or a favourite duck? 
Oh, no, not really, no. You can't be doing that, says you. You have to love them all equally. Is that right? Yeah. And come here, so um, was Sarah okay after laying this big egg or was she very yeah, tired? She's grand. she's grand, bopping around. Yeah. Bopping around she's as well. She's still laying big eggs, but not that big. Oh, right. Okay. God, fair play to her. Um, do you know, could your uh, egg be Ireland's largest egg? Do you know, has there been other eggs that have been that large laid elsewhere? Well, there was one a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and um, that was 117 grams. And then three or four weeks ago, there was one that was 124 grams or something like that. Right. And where is the egg now, Sean? Uh, it's over here in our kitchen. Well, uh, my brother's communion's next week, and we're going to, or on Saturday, we're going to make a cake with it. Oh, God, your mammy must be very clever now because I'm not very good with maths. But if so, is that big egg? I suppose she'll just use that as two eggs. Would that be right? Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. Do you think it'll have one yolk in it, or will it have two yolks, or might it have four yolks in it? Yeah, probably it'll only have two. So, yeah, so you, so you think it'll probably have more than, than one yolk in it, do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and tell me, what are your other hens called? She's Sarah. Yeah, I don't really name much of them. We didn't really name other ones. We oh. just named her Sarah because ah, well, she laid the big eggs. I think she's your favourite then. If she's the only one that has a name, that would make me think that she is actually your favourite. Would I be right? Maybe. <laughs> and what about your lambs? How are they? What are they? Do they have names? No, they're grand. How old are they? Um, they're only off now. They're three or four months old. And which are the hardest of your animals to look after? Which are the ones that you have to spend most time looking after? We dog. He's probably the hardest. <laughs> That's a great answer. I take it your dog has a name, has he? Yeah, Alfie. Alfie. What kind of a class of a dog? Is he a big dog or a small dog? He's a big golden retriever dog. Oh, is he? And is he well yeah. behaved? I have a Labrador and he's not very well behaved. Yeah, he eats loads of things and, ever, and he digs holes in the lawn sometimes. Oh, no. And does he mind the chickens or the, the lambs or anything or does he just... No, he doesn't really, no. He doesn't really. Excellent. And come here, I think your mammy is there with you, is she? Yeah. Can I have Can I have a chat with your mom? Yeah. Very good. Hello. Hello, that's Barbara, is it? Hi, yes, Barbara. Barbara here gets a great name, Barbara. Not many of us around anymore. No, no. not too many. <laughs> you must be very proud of your young man there. He sounds like a very capable young fella. Yeah, he's he's um, he, he's a hardworking young lad. He really is, yeah. And do you live in a farm or is this just, you know, you've got a bit we, of space? We, and... Yeah, we live and we grow carrots. My husband grows carrots. And then uh, we have beef and tillage as well. Right. Last year, Sean wanted to grow a few pumpkins, so he um, he grew pumpkins. He saved the seed from the year before, and he planted pumpkins in the greenhouse. Oh wow! And um, the cousins are preferred. It was this weekend last year because the dairy fair was on, so they spent the weekend out planting pumpkins in the greenhouse. And then when the frost was gone, the end of June or the start of June, you plant them. You transplant them out into the field. Wow! And then they grew. So we had we had two acres of a pumpkin patch last year. And we opened it for three days to... We were doing it for friends and family. Yeah. And then we'd over 4,000 visitors. Wow, that's but, um, incredible. That's a, that's yeah. a 
God, fair play to him. Listen, I've one thing I wanted to say to you, Barbara. Yeah. Um, I had very big babies and they are a risk factor. If you, that's one of the risk factors for type two diabetes. So keep a keep a good eye on Sarah there in case on she develops her, okay. in case she okay. develops diabetes and her blood sugars all go a bit wallop. <laughs> Listen, okay. thanks a million and the best of luck with the communion this weekend and the cake. I hope it all goes Thank very, you. very well. That was the guy family there. And that's it for today. I am back with you again tomorrow. Hooray says you. Uh, don't away Eddie is up next and I'm when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant Glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.